but this past week, I was uh, blessed to be able to attend the Gospel Coalition's National Conference in Indianapolis. I want to thank you for being the kind of church that supports me as your pastor in uh, those kinds of opportunities to get away and get spiritually rejuvenated by events like that. But uh, my wife Polly joined, and she had a little bit of a different experience than I did. You know, I asked her on the trip home, what did you think of the conference? And her, uh, her take was, you know, it was a lot. Um, felt like kind of drinking from a fire hose. She's used to changing diapers and doing laundry all day long. And it felt like stepping straight from that into a theology classroom for 48 hours straight. And uh, her, her, her main thing was, she said, I would have really appreciated a little more practical, down-to-earth type application and so then I returned home this week to my sermon text for the, for, for the week, Genesis chapter 24, which is where we're going to be this morning, if you want to begin turning there. And I began researching, and I discovered that everyone who preaches Genesis chapter 24, the story of Isaac and Rebekah, as your Bible might title it, or Abraham finds a wife for his son Isaac, or even more accurately, Abraham's servant finds a wife for Isaac, all the sermons take one of two approaches. They either treat this as sort of a paradigmatic example of how God's sovereignty intersects with our human uh, responsibility, how is God's providence, God's being in total absolute sovereign control of the universe interrelated with our own free will and decision making. That's one approach to interpreting the passage, or second option, it's all about finding a godly spouse. And so out of love for my godly spouse this week, I decided I'm going to keep it super practical for us, and I'm going to take that second route, how to find a spouse. Now, we'll weave in the other theme as well, because it's there in the text, but I recognize, even in, in announcing that for you, that we have three categories of listeners here this morning. I think Everyone here is either unmarried, married, or post-married. Here's what I mean. If you're unmarried, this sermon is especially for you. If you're not yet married, whether you're a young, single adult, youth, even kids we might have join us in the service, need to pay attention. This is for you. I want to try and extract a lot of practical biblical principles for finding a godly spouse Secondly, if you're married, this sermon is for you too. And specifically, my, my hope and prayer would be that as we work our way through this morning, uh, twofold. Number one, that you would be encouraged. I pray that you have already been blessed with a godly spouse. And if so, here's an opportunity this morning to celebrate that, to praise God, to celebrate God's providential work in bringing uh, you, a wonderful, loving spouse, your own Rebecca, your own Isaac. But also, number two, I pray that this morning you would be challenged as you glimpse a biblical vision of the kind of spouses that God desires for his people, and you turn that mirror around on yourself and realize, oh man, I, I'm not always that kind of a spouse, but by God's grace and with his help, I desire to be. I want to be a better spouse for my spouse. And so, encouragement and challenge. And then, uh, thirdly, I recognize, as I said, that we have many people here who fall in that category that I'm labeling post-married. Either you are widowed 
or you are divorced, or perhaps you're single and you're old enough that you're no longer actively praying and searching for a godly spouse, maybe you never did. Maybe you have always felt God's sort of lifelong calling to singleness for his glory. That's a beautiful calling. I remember when my own mother, who had been divorced probably 15 years at the time, finally left the church that I grew up in, West Tennessee. She said, I just felt like every sermon illustration was always about marriage. And then the pastor announced that he was going to do an eight-week sermon series specifically on marriage. And I just realized this church is not for me anymore. Sad. If that's you this morning, if you saw the sermon title in your bulletin this morning, and you had half a mind to walk out, get back in your car, and, and take off, I'm really glad you didn't. I'm really glad you're here. Because I want to give you the ultimate takeaway for us from Genesis 24 this morning. This story is not ultimately about God's sovereignty and man's agency. It's not ultimately about finding a godly spouse even. More than anything else, Genesis 24 is an allegory. It is a symbolic narrative intended to point us ahead to the relationship between Christ and his church. See if this story sounds familiar to you. A father seeking a bride for his beloved only son sends his servant. The servant is actually going to be the main character in Genesis 24. He's not even named in the chapter. All we hear is that he is Abraham's oldest and most trusted servant in charge of overseeing his entire estate. But Abraham identified him for us earlier in chapter 15, verse 2, as Eleazar of Damascus. Any idea what the name Eleazar means? It means comforter. In John 14, 26, Jesus promised his disciples who were anxious about his death and departure, he said, don't worry, the Father will send you a comforter, the Holy Spirit in my name. Friends, this whole story of Abraham and Eliezer, Rebecca and Isaac, it is an allegory for the gospel. In Matthew 22, 2, Jesus tells a parable that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who arranged a wedding for his son. This is the good news that God has not only sought out, but has actually bought, purchased, called, sanctified for his son Jesus, a bride, a people of every tribe and nation and tongue by the power of his very own spirit. That's the gospel. Our servant, our comforter, our divine matchmaker between us and our bridegroom, Jesus. This is this is what we're going to see on display this morning. So whichever of those three categories you fit into this morning, unmarried, married, post-married, I just want to encourage you, this sermon is for you because the gospel is for you. And even as I keep it practical and I highlight some tips for finding a godly spouse, we need to remember that we are all in need of so much more than just an earthly companion, we are in need of a savior, an eternal savior, someone to be united to spiritually in a two-become-one-flesh kind of union. Jesus prayed, John 17, that we may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and me in you, that they also may be in us. Union. Ephesians 5 says that all marriage is designed to be a picture, its own allegory of that 
relationship, the relationship between Christ and his church. And so that is what Genesis 24 is about. So would you stand with me as you're able and we read the first one-third of it together. We're only going to cover the first third of the chapter this morning together. Hear the word of the Lord. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife from my son, from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from my land and my kindred, and who spoke to me and who swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land, he will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this master, this matter. Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman, of whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say back, drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had even finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born of Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water, and she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. And when the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And presumably he gave them to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you again this morning for your word. And as we now humble ourselves and submit ourselves under its authority, I pray that you would bless it, that you would bless my, my words, that they would be not mine but yours, that you uh, would move in and through this sermon. Your people need to hear, not from me, not my voice, but yours. Thank you that your sheep hear the shepherd's voice, your word tells us. So I pray that's what would happen right now. And that as we hear from your word, that you would use it to both encourage and challenge us, uh, to, to strengthen us, but to convict us, that you would, uh, most of all, more than any practical tips for marriage, we need uh, to be reminded and pointed to the gospel this morning and the great hope that we have in our bridegroom, Jesus. It's in his precious holy name that we pray. Amen. Maybe seated. All right, let's dive right in. We've got a lot to get to. This is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, 67 verses, but I could only uh, read the first 22. Uh, I could only find 20 bullet points for you, as you see in your uh, bulletins there. At the conference, David Platt preached on Hebrews chapter 13, 25 point sermon. And so Pastor Thad texted me. Uh, in the middle of it, yes, even pastors text during sermons, during 25-point sermons, he texted, he, he texted, I expect a 26-point sermon from you on Sunday, and so I'm sorry to disappoint Thad, I did my best, I only got 20 points, and worse than that, I only got halfway through writing, and I realized that I'd already hit my word count, and so rather than keep you here for 80 minutes, I'm going to make you come back next week for part two, the last 10 principles, we'll cover, cover the first 10 this morning, first 10 principles of finding a godly spouse. Number one, you involve godly parents. Involve godly parents. We read in verse 1, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years. In the next chapter, chapter 25, verse 20, it will inform us that Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah to be his wife. Abraham was 100 years old when he finally had Isaac, you remember. And so Abraham is now 140 years years old and he's going to live another 35 years after this and die at the ripe old age of 175 so miss june you've just got another 80 years to go before you catch up to abraham uh, but these are the final words that we hear from this great patriarch verse 2 abraham said to his servant to the oldest of his household who had charge of all that he had put your hand under my thigh. Now, that's a rather odd way to begin your farewell speech. I had the privilege uh, yesterday of co-leading a memorial service for Bob Underwood with uh, my predecessor here at West Hills, my, my ministry mentor, Pastor Gary Brooks. And I'm just imagining how I would have reacted uh, if during his final sermon, his farewell address, he had called me up on stage and instructed me to put my hand under his thigh probably would have said, thanks, I, I don't want the job that bad. <laughs> Commentator Gordon Wenham explains for us, by putting his hand under Abraham's thigh, the servant was touching his genitals and thus giving the oath a special solemnity. In the ancient Orient, oaths were taken holding some sacred object, as is still customary today to take an oath on the Bible in court. An oath by the seat of procreation is particularly apt in this instance when it concerns the finding 
of a wife and production of offspring for Isaac. So we thank God that this is one of those traditions that has gone the way of the dinosaur. But, but what about the tradition of arranged marriages? That's, that's the context here. Abraham is arranging a marriage for his son Isaac. That is still the way that marriages are established in many countries all over the world today. We might find it odd, even backwards or repressive, but then we turn on the TV to watch 20 girls try and sleep their way to the top of the pack, competing for a rose from a total stranger. And I ask you, which is more backwards and oppressive? Don't watch The Bachelor, by the way. Just seriously, don't. What makes more sense, trusting a 22 or 23-year-old? That's how old Polly and I were when we got married. I know that's how old many of you have told me you were when you got married prefrontal cortexes, not even done developing yet, to trust them to unilaterally make the second biggest decision of their lives, or to trust the wisdom and loving discernment of godly parents who are typically far more mature. Job 12.12 says, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. That's assuming that you have godly parents like Abraham, but I would contend that even unbelieving parents have great wisdom to share. Parents, I ask you this morning, have you earned your kids' trust? Have you earned the right to speak into their lives, their major life decisions? No one likes free advice. Do your kids ask you for advice? Do they see your wisdom and desire it, desire to benefit from it? Have you cultivated the kind of relationship with your kids where you can both speak openly and honestly with one another about important stuff? In my experience, that's, that's rare, even in, in the church world, between parents and kids. It's really, really sad. But smart young Christians will want to involve godly parents in their decision-making. Number two, Christians marry in the family. We are a spiritually incestuous people. Verses 3 and 4, Abraham exhorts Eleazar to swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country and to my kindred. Remember, Abraham is just sojourning in Canaan. All the rest of his people, the people of the promise, his relatives, are settled back in Mesopotamia, in Nahor, some 450 miles north. And Abraham's demand here anticipates God's own command later in the law in Deuteronomy 7, when the Lord your God brings you into the land and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, you shall not intermarry with them giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn you away from following me to serve other gods. And that Old Testament command anticipates God's New Testament command to his people, to we Christians, that we not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 6, uh, verse 14. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? In ancient agriculture, a farmer would yoke two oxen together to make sure they were plowing in the same direction. So if you were a believer, 
who surrendered your life to Christ to live for his glory, to follow his will for your life, to walk the straight and narrow path that leads to him. And how in the world are you going to be able to stay yoked to someone who has not died to themselves to follow Christ? You are constantly going to be pulling in opposite directions. That's why Christians marry Christians. Now, I should point out here that if you have already gotten this wrong, if you did marry an unbeliever, perhaps you came to faith later in life yourself when you were already married, we Christians don't divorce either. 1 Corinthians 7, Paul writes, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord gives this command. The wife should not separate from her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. For how do you know, wife, whether you're, you will save your husband? Because God sanctifies us through marriage. God continues working in spite of our mistakes, even through our mistakes. Listen, I know that sounds harsh to, to describe your marriage that way potentially, as a, as a mistake. I think the gospel allows us to be honest, to be brutally honest with ourselves and with one another. Call a spade a spade. Listen, Polly and I should not have gotten married. Not when we did, at least not when we did in the way we did. Neither one of us was in a, a place to be making that kind of a decision. But praise God that he is in the business of redemption of turning our bad decisions into good outcomes for his glory, bringing beauty from ashes. But if you haven't yet made that mistake, if you are a category one, not yet married believer, you need to marry in the family. Keep it in the family if you marry at all. Number three, don't compromise God's calling. Don't compromise God's calling. Verses 5 and 6, the servant said to Abraham, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to the land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? And Abraham said to him, see to it that you do not take my son back. Under no circumstances are you to take Isaac back there. In fact, in chapter 26, there's going to be a terrible famine in the land of Canaan. And even then, God specifically instructs Isaac, do not go down to Egypt, but dwell in the land. Sojourn in the land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. Because God does not renege on his promises. Now, later in Genesis, we will hear about Isaac's grandson, Joseph, going down to Egypt. But that's a different story. That's, that's another example of God working despite our sin. The whole Egypt slavery thing never should have happened. And yet God redemptively brings about his plan and his purposes in spite of even our worst decisions. But the principle for us here is simple enough. We don't compromise God's calling on our lives. If you know that God has called you to be a missionary, let's say, and then a week before you head overseas, get on the plane, you meet the woman of your dreams, you don't cancel the trip. Guess what? If she is really the woman of your dreams, she will tag along for the ride. She'll take the leap of faith with you. Because as important as marriage is, God is not going to yoke you to someone who would prevent you from pursuing his good calling on your life. Number four, trust God, but leave him space. Trust God, but leave him space. Have faith 
in God, but allow room for him to work in ways that you never would have imagined. Verse 7, Abraham says, The Lord, the God of heaven, who swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send his angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. Abraham boldly declares in faith, God will provide a wife for Isaac. And what we're going to see in the rest of the story here, I love this story, by the way. This is a, such a great story because there, there are no miracles in Genesis 24. God does not supernaturally intervene and defy the laws of nature and science in order to accomplish his will here. In fact, we don't hear a single word from God himself in this whole chapter. Not a peep from God. Here's how Wenham explains it. He says, here God is not actually on stage, but the action in the chapter is such a palpable answer to the servant's prayer. In verse 12, we'll hear Eliezer pray for success in finding a wife for Isaac. He says, it's such a palpable answer to that prayer that we feel that God is just behind the curtain pushing Rebecca on stage right on cue. Elsewhere in Genesis, God is on stage, front and center. God's the main character. But here, he stays behind the curtain. He's still working. He's still directing. He's just not visible. That's faith. Friends, faith is trusting that God is still working even when you can't see him. Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not yet seen. Abraham trusts God to make good on his promises, but then he adds in verse 8, I love this too, but if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath. Only you must not take my son back there. Abraham trusts God, but then he leaves room for God to work in unforeseen ways. He says, look, it only makes sense if God has promised that God would provide a wife while you're there visiting Nahor. But I've also lived long enough to know that God doesn't always work in the ways that make sense. And so Abraham says, the only thing I know for sure is that Isaac is staying here. He's not going back there. That's a promise. Beyond that, I'm just going to leave space for God to work in ways that maybe I could never have even dreamed of. Reminds me of that great line from the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego story in Daniel chapter 3 when they refused to bow to King Nebuchadnezzar, and so he warns them, I'm about to throw you in the fire. And they reply, O Nebuchadnezzar, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from your burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand. But even if he doesn't, be it known to you, O king, that we will not worship you. They say, listen, it makes sense that God would protect us. It makes sense that God would rescue and deliver us for obeying him, and we are hoping and we are trusting him to do that. But even if he doesn't, he's still good. And I will still have faith. And I will trust, even if I go to my death, trusting and obeying that his plans are better than mine. Friends, that is faith. And whether it's for finding a spouse for you or whatever major or even minor decision that might stand before you this morning, God is calling you to trust him even if he decides to work in ways that you never could have predicted. Number five, 
pray. Pray. Verses 9 through 12, we read, The servant arose, and he went to Mesopotamia, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Eliezer prays. He prays. This is actually the first prayer in the Bible for, specifically for divine guidance at a critical life juncture. You know the, the kind of prayer that some of us only ever pray? Like some of us try and do everything in our power to avoid ever needing to pray, ever needing to rely on God. And we force God to force us to our knees with nowhere left to look but up before we will finally turn to him in humility and in prayer. James 4.2 says, you do not have because you do not ask. Jesus said, everyone who asks receives. Which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? How much more will your heavenly father give you good things to those who ask of him? A godly spouse is a good thing, a thing worth asking God for. So pray for that person if you are unmarried. But leave space for God to answer that prayer with, not yet. Not in your timing, but in mine. Not the person you want for yourself, but the person I'm going to provide. Leave space even for God to answer, no. A godly spouse is a good thing. According to 1 Corinthians 7, singleness is an even better thing. So, either way, we need to be praying. Number six, seek a servant-hearted spouse. Servant-hearted. Verses 13 and 14, Eliezer continues, Let the young woman to whom I shall say, Please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels also. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. This is not just a random you know, fleece, Gideon's fleece that Eliezer lays down. This is not just a haphazard sign that he's asking for. This was a carefully thought out strategic uh, prayer. He's looking for a girl with a servant's heart. Not just any servant. It's not enough for her to offer him some water. She's got to offer to get water for all 10 of this guy's camels. Do you have any idea how much water a single camel will drink after a 450-mile journey? 25 gallons. You multiply that by 10 camels, my math says 250 gallons of water. Kent Hughes adds, the ancient well was large, a large deep hole in the earth with steps leading down to the spring water so that each drawing of water required substantial effort. An ancient water jar held about three gallons of water, 25 pounds worth of water. This means that Rebecca made between 80 and 100 trips up and down, 25 pounds on her head. And a camel takes 10 minutes to drink its full complement of water, so Rebecca's labors filled two or more sweaty hours. The heat of the Middle Eastern desert sun. Do you wonder why Eliezer brought 10 camels along? I think it was for this very purpose, because he wanted to know if she was the kind of girl who would go above and beyond in her selfless, sacrificial love for his servant Isaac. 
his master Isaac, rather. I don't uh, remember the exact moment when I knew that Polly was the one. You know, we always ask each other that question. But I do remember when I realized that she was at least marriage material, you know, the kind of uh, girl that you would want to end up with. It was the end of my junior year when my roommates had all left early for the summer and stuck me with cleaning our entire apartment by myself or else we were going to leave our, all lose our $250 security deposits. And my future wife delayed her summer break to come help scrub college boy filth off of sinks and showers and toilets for two days. And I thought to myself, either there is something really wrong with this girl or she's the real deal. She's a Rebecca. The Apostle Paul begins his great sermon on marriage, Ephesians 5, by calling us to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The only way that marriage works is if you've got two people who are both willing to die to themselves to put the other one's needs above their own. If you're both self-serving, you're going to end up as resentful roommates. If one of you is selfless, the other is selfish, then you'll end up in a codependent, abusive relationship. You've got to have two people mutually submitting to serving one another. Number seven. And this one is sort of incidental. The text only barely makes the point in passing, but it's worth noting bonus points for attractiveness and for purity. In verses 15 and 16, we hear, before he had even finished speaking, praying, I love that, Eliezer's still in the middle of his prayer, God is already sending him the answer, if only it were always that easy, right? Behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder. Verse 16, the young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. Now, I want to be careful here, making too much of this point. Because ladies, he's going to get flabby. Men, she's going to get saggy. And so I hope that physical attractiveness was not the primary thing that drew you together. It might have been the initial thing. We are, you know, God gives us eyes for a reason. But if that is the foundational basis for... The, the, the foundation, the future of your relationship, you're in trouble. But it sure is a nice bonus, isn't it? Like you're going to spend a significant amount of time in your life with your significant other. Marriage is already hard enough, but it's just a little easier when that other person is easy on the eyes, isn't it? Those of you with attractive spouses like me. When God uses your spouse's physical attractiveness to drive you back, one another time and time again. You know, we, we, we ought to praise God for an attractive spouse and praise God for a sexually pure spouse as well, a maiden whom no man had known. Again, I want to reiterate, God redeems our bad, our worst decisions in life. God can and does bring beautiful marriages out of relationships that started that were marked by previous sexual impurity or when one or both parties bring sexual baggage into uh, the marriage from prior relationships, that is in no way a death sentence for a healthy, thriving, God-honoring marriage. But man, it sure does 
work best when you do it the right way on the front end and save yourselves from having to work through those issues. Number eight, act. God may be behind the curtain, but Eleazar is still on stage and he has to act. Spring to action. Verse 17, the servant ran to meet Rebekah. He's not trying to play hard to get. He's not content to just wait over in, in the shade while she draws water. Well, if she's really the girl I've been praying for, she'll come over to me. You know, she'll come initiate the conversation. No, this isn't some middle school dance. There's no time to be passive and wait and see who's going to make the first move. He runs to meet her. He wants Rebecca to be God's chosen bride for Isaac. Once you've found a good girl or guy who your parents would approve of, who's a fellow believer, the kind of person you've prayed for and trusted God to provide, who's servant-hearted, physically attractive, uh, sexually pure, what do you do next? You act, you run, you ask them out on a date. And men, at the risk of getting canceled for how antiquated it must sound for me to say this in today's world, men, you need to step up. Young men, you need to step up. This is your God-given role in the relationship. God is calling you to lead, to act, to be the one to make the first move. You ask her out. Ladies, if he won't, if he wants to play games, play hard to get, keep playing the field, if he's just playing, then you need to dump his sorry butt. Because kids play games, you deserve a man. Husbands, the same is true in our marriages. Don't be passive, husbands. God is calling you to lead. Step up to the plate. Don't be a passive father. If your kids know that mom is the one really calling the shots, that's a problem. If your kids know, if the, if the only reason that your family ever prays together at dinner ever does morning devotionals, ever comes to church on Sundays. It's because mom is the one cracking the whip. That is a problem. God is calling men to lead and to act. Some guys are going to feel the spirit of conviction this morning. We're going to get some proposals over lunch today. I can feel it. Before you do, slow down for just a minute because number nine, you need to use prayerful discernment. Use prayerful discernment. Look at verse 21. Those whole two sweaty hours while poor Rebecca is running up and down the well steps, 100 trips with the 25-pound bucket on her head. What is Eleazar doing? The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. He's still praying. After you pray, pray some more prayerfully discerning God's will while he carefully watches Rebecca's every move. Is she the one? Could it be? 1 Thessalonians 5.21 exhorts us to test everything and hold fast to what is good. Romans 12.2, Paul calls us to be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Prayerful discernment. Where does this gift of discernment come from? The Bible calls it a spiritual gift. James 1.5 says, if, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, what do you do? Let him ask God, 
who gives generously to all. You've got to pray for the ability to pray well <laughs> and pray dis- discernfully, discerningly. Lastly, for this morning, number 10, you want to find someone you value. This is verse 22. When the camels had finished drinking, The man took a gold ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. We're going to hear later, that's just the down payment. That's just the earnest money on the relationship. Next week, in verse uh, verse 53, we're going to hear that once the engagement is finalized, Eliezer brings out jewelry of silver and gold and garments and gives them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. Man, I'm such a cheapskate. I hate spending money. Polly wants to redo some stuff in our house right now. New bed, new furniture, new floors. This is not exorbitant, self-indulgent stuff right now. She's very frugal and respectful of bearing with my ridiculous um, cheapskateness. But you know, this, it's the kind of stuff that I would not ever spend money on if it was just up to me. But I have to keep reminding myself she's worth it. I don't value, I don't value nice furniture or floors. But she does, and I value her. She's worth it. You want to find someone that you value, who's worth it. Your spouse may be worth a gold ring, a couple gold bracelets for her arms. This is where I want to bring it full circle this morning and end. Do you know the one who's worth your whole life? your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Only Jesus is worth it all. This story is meant to point us back to him, our better bridegroom, the most attractive, pure, servant-hearted, valuable partner for life that you could ever imagine or hope for. Give your life to him this morning. He is worth every bit of it. Amen? Let's pray.